You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boomerang people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners and custodians of this land upon which we live and work. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who may be in our audience or listening to this broadcast. We acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement and that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, Pack and current hands. affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 oh, a.m. to late 30 a.m. Good morning and welcome to Monday Breakfast. How is everyone feeling? Oh, very good. Good morning. Yeah, great to um, be back in the. Uh, virtual studio with you both. We're excited to be uh, producing the show today and presenting on June the 1st, which is the first day of the loosening, further loosening of social restrictions, um, but also an important day for 3CR with our station appeal kicking off today. Yeah, day one of the Radiothon from today. And how, we'll how really did, be offering the support. How long does that go for? I think it's a, a month-long um, sort of uh, appeal where we're trying to, yeah, raise um, some funds just to basically keep the studio going. You know, as most of our listeners know, the presenters are all volunteers, so we, we're giving our time and um, don't get paid, but the studio still needs funds to operate and, you know, run uh, a radio station, basically. So, yeah, it's really important that um, this, this month uh, our listeners who can afford or to give a little uh, just do that for us and hop onto the website at www.3cr.org.au and we yeah, would love to receive your support and continue to do what we love to do. Uh, yeah, we really want to be able to keep bringing you these important stories and giving a voice to people we don't always hear so much from in the mainstream media. Um, and yeah, we, although we're not paid, we do need money to keep going. I think it is so important to keep you know, these community radio stations going, community, uh, community and media outlets. When you see all those regional uh, newspapers and things being shut down, you realise how fragile these, these organisations can be, even if you know, they're under a paid model. That's right. Yeah, I think, I think the unpaid model actually um, brings more transparency and you know more desire to be you know sharing the truth because no one's in it for money, and we're just here because we enjoy doing what we're doing and we want listeners to hear stories that they might not otherwise be able to access through the mainstream media. And on that on that topic, what is your story? What story are you looking into this week, Claudia? Uh, well, I've got a uh, interview with Maya Newell. She's one of the directors of a observational documentary 
In My Blood It Runs, which had its cinema release uh, in early March. And I actually spoke to her back then at the Australian International Documentary Conference, which is an annual documentary event, uh, because the film had just come out. But then, of course, COVID shutdown happened and they were no sooner were they in the cinemas, they were out of cinemas, but they've sort of pivoted around and done a virtual release. And with Reconciliation Week uh, upon us, um, there are some special screenings in the virtual cinema that uh, the public can access and also some live Q&As and uh, also an education kit that's available to schools to promote learning um, through the film. So, yeah, I'll be talking to Maya about about that and, uh, yeah, it really uh, worthwhile listen. It's PG rated, so, yeah, suitable for families with children over 10. I was going to say, yeah, we've heard from um, Maya on 3CL before. I know um, we played Annie McLaughlin's interview with Maya on, from Solidarity Breakfast on Monday Breakfast. Um, so it'll be nice to get an update and hear how things are going since the crisis. She's also able to give a picture of um, what's happening with the community in Northern Territory. Uh, they've obviously done a fantastic job up there keeping um, COVID safe. And, uh, yeah, so she can then focus on what they're doing in terms of the social impact actions that are working alongside the film's release to make change in the areas of education and also to uh, increase the age of child imprisonment in Australia because at the moment uh, a child as young as 10 can be sent to prison which is um, extraordinary and the film's star 10 year old um, Joanne uh, has actually been the youngest person ever to address the United Nations Human Rights Committee. Uh, he went to Geneva last year and made an address um, stating why he believed Australia's um, incarceration minimum age should be raised to 14. So, yeah, he's a, a young leader to watch. That's really cool. Oh, and um, who did you speak to this week, Paddy? I spoke to uh, Professor Libby Porter from RMIT University about uh, public land being sold off, um, particularly under the Public Housing Renewal Program, and how that's really, um, it's really selling off public housing at a time when the need for public housing is so high. So that's, um, that was a really interesting interview. And uh, I think, uh, you know, a real problem that if, if, if this land gets sold off now, the opportunity cost of being able to keep um, public housing um, at an affordable cost in metropolitan Melbourne is going to be lost because it's going to be too expensive for the government to buy back. So it's, um, it is uh, something that we need to follow and sort of campaign against. Absolutely. That sounds extraordinary given the very um, obvious need for more housing. It, it seems that it's been sort of systematically sold off over time. And the the problem with the public housing renewal program is you know it sounds like it sounds like it's going to be something good for public housing, but really it's actually privatizing public housing, and then it's you know like a small percentage in this block will still be public housing, but the rest of it will be private dwellings. So it's not really it's more like public housing destruction program, if anything. 
Yeah, we mm. hear a lot about the difference between um, public housing and social housing. Is is that it? Is that more public? Uh, sorry, social housing. Yeah, um, I actually asked that question to Libby. So if you guys listen in, um, she'll explain the difference no between those two. Yeah, <laughs> she much much more eloquently than I can. And who did you speak to this week, Ella? Uh, yeah, so this week I'll be speaking with Susan Legina, who is CEO of the charity Plan International Australia, um, about the impact of the pandemic on girls and women when they have their periods. Um, so Thursday was World Menstrual Hygiene Day, um, and Plan International released the results of research they've conducted about menstrual hygiene um, and managing it during the pandemic, and in particular lockdown. Um, so they found um, in their survey, women have said sanitary products are harder to buy, they're more expensive, um, and just handling your period is harder because of aspects like public toilets being closed, maybe it's harder to see a doctor. Um, so we hear a lot about um, various shortages, lots of um, toilet paper shortage stories or the struggle to find pasta, um, but we really haven't heard a lot about the difficulty finding pads and tampons, um, and this is an area that needs more visibility. Um, so I'm going to be asking her about how women in Australia have been impacted um, and how this compares us to women around the world. I know even um, even at our local supermarket, when the run on the supermarkets was at its highest, yeah, there, there was no uh, menstrual products available. Yeah, I think hygiene products generally um, were just off the shelves. Sorry, I was going to say, and um, we spoke earlier on the show about the need to remain vigilant in a time of crisis. Um, so even though we've seen a lot of great action from the government, I think while everyone's attention is so diverted with the pandemic, it has also created the opportunity um, for laws and legislation to be changed without so much scrutiny. Um, and there's one uh, story that stood out to me this week, um, which was that Peter Dutton is now trying to change the laws so that um, uh, asylum seekers and refugees can have their phones confiscated. Um, so I actually heard about this through the Facebook page for Priya, Nardis, Kapika and Sarunika, the Billawila family who are being <coughs> sorry, the Billawila family who are being held on Christmas Island. Um, so their Facebook page is really promoting this story. Um, we're trying to bring attention to this story because we've seen in that particular case how important it's been for them to have their phone. Um, not just for them to stay in contact with friends and family, but also to document what's happening. Um, so the National Justice Project have released a petition, um, which I want to put on our Monday breakfast page this week. Yeah, that sounds so, like so a really important, important story. Yeah. Because uh, I don't know if you guys read it, but Baruz Buchani's book, uh, No Friend But The Man, and so that was com re completely written on a mobile phone, I think, and texted to his translator. So I imagine if... Yeah, yeah all book, over um, you know, WhatsApp, I think. Mm. Yeah wild to think the podcast uh, the messenger um was completely yeah whatsapp messages oh wow well it's a busy busy show this week we better get into it yeah let's dive right in
In 2010, the Solidarity Fund for Imprisoned and Persecuted Militants was established in Greece, one of the few Western countries where manifestations of political praxis provide the international anarchist community with examples of what is po possible if we are serious about actually living our politics. Since its inception, the fund has provided regular and consistent support to those persecuted or imprisoned for their subversive actions or for their participation in social struggles. The aim of the fund is to ensure decent living conditions for the imprisoned comrades. An essential strategy in supporting militant political movements to engage in resistance from the last frontier of battlegrounds against the state. Resistance from within the confines of prison. Currently, the Solidarity Fund for Imprisoned and Persecuted Militants supports 24 prisoners on a regular monthly basis, including 11 militants from Turkey and Kurdistan, incarcerated within Greek prisons. In addition to providing practical funds and essential materials to our imprisoned comrades, the Solidarity Fund aims to build and develop communication between our incarcerated militant comrades and to unite the struggles between those inside prison and those outside it. The slogan, no one left alone in the hands of the state, is becoming more crucial and tangible, particularly during the COVID-19 pandemic. Music for the Global Intifada, in, co in collaboration with our comrades from post-romantic queer wave, the Anarcho-Queer Agitation Bureau of Nihilistic Tendencies, a highly respected solidarity initiative renowned not just for their transparent fundraising efforts, but also their relentless work in supporting a wide range of international anti-fascist, anti-colonial, queer and prison abolitionist campaigns, are urging anyone with spare cash to donate to the Solidarity Fund for Imprisoned and Persecuted Greek Militants at www.firefund.net forward slash imprisoned soli or to purchase unique handmade agitprop from post-romantic queer wave the anarcho queer agitation bureau of nihilistic tendencies check their website out at postromanticqueerwave.noblogs.org in supporting our comrades solidarity will be our weapon until the demolition of the last prison, none of us is free. Solidarity with political prisoners. Mama told me to be happy, cause you always get what you want. Don't speak, you said I have your love, but know how much you will cost. Mama told me. I love you, but I don't Don't speak, I hope you're happy Cause I think I pay what you want And for the time I go, your love had been so Everyone else but me And maybe when I'm old and speaking in gold You will be willing to see And we'd be
too busy burning flags And I'm the best thing you ever had But you're too busy burning flags And I'm the best thing you ever had But you're too busy burning flags And I'm the best thing you ever had But you're too busy burning flags That was Thelma Plum with How Much Does Your Love Cost? This week I spoke with Susan Lejana, CEO of Plan International Australia, a charity for girls' equality. Last Thursday was World Menstrual Hygiene Day and Plan International released a report, Periods in the Pandemic, which looked at the gendered impact of the pandemic, particularly around menstruation. I started by asking Susan to tell me what they'd found out about how the current crisis, and in particular lockdown, is impacting women and girls when they have their period. Yeah, so the report we released, Periods in a Pandemic, I mean, the key message for me was that while your period goes on during a pandemic, managing them has become a whole lot harder. And it's become a whole lot harder for a number of reasons. Of the people that we surveyed um, in Australia, half of those said that they'd had trouble finding um, period product, particularly when there was panic buying had sort of started. And there was also widespread reports of Um, prices having risen and remaining higher than usual and maybe that had something to do with the scarcity that was around at the time as well and also people told us things like maybe because of the pandemic maybe the extra stress and pressure which people are already under had amplified their um, premenstrual tension and maybe their pain during their periods and concerning to me was that some people said that while they normally would have gone and seen a GP about that they were sort of avoiding going to the doctor for fear of either contracting the virus or taking up resources for those that did have it. And while um, that is, you know, um, understandable, I think with telehealth appointments, it means that um, we really encourage people to still reach out to a GP or a doctor if they're experiencing pain. And then we also looked globally at people who've been working in this area um, with girls all over the world. And I mean, that, you know, echoed some of the same things, but show that um, some of the challenges people face just in having access to um, to water um, facilities um, where they could hygienically um, change and uh, wash themselves. Um, yeah, access to products was really difficult. And also some of the stigma and shame sort of attached to periods kind of had become worse as people were isolated at home and um, maybe not able to access the kind of information and support that maybe a school offers. And as we know, the impact of the crisis tends to hit those who are most vulnerable first and harder. 
Um, so while mm. a few extra dollars at the supermarket might not sound like a lot, it can make a big difference if you're living close to the poverty line or closing public toilets might not have much of an impact for those of us locked down at home. Um, but if you're homeless, it can make life very difficult. Um, what are some of the experiences you've heard from marginalised women on managing their periods, not only safely, but with dignity? Yeah, so the things that you mentioned, like, you know, if you've lost your livelihood or your job, you know, the cost of things becomes really an issue. And we had people, you know, talking about not being able to afford um, products, um, making other choices. And then things like, as you say, like your access to facilities is a really big issue. And as businesses closed and public toilets closed, then your access to being able to find hygienic places where you could, you know, change your period products um, also became harder. And, you know, it was also concerning that people just said they were kind of, um, you know, this. it really did, does kind of add to the stress. I mean, we know a lot about the run on toilet paper that Australia had, but there was also a run on, you know, period products. And just the anxiety and stress that that added to as people went from shop to shop trying to find what they needed, um, that, that makes it harder for people who have fewer resources as well. And can you tell us about Plan International and how your organisation is helping tackle this issue? Yeah, so Plan International is a, um, a child rights and young people's agency works across the world. A really particular focus on gender equality, and we've been working with um, communities for more than 80 years. But one of the things we've been really trying to focus on is just ensuring that um, this idea of your sort of menstrual hygiene is kind of built into the COVID 19 response plans in communities that people have access to things like dignity kits, which include you know soap and access to pads and other things that you might need so that you can. Um, look after yourself during this period, um, that people who are stockpiling um, necessary goods ensure that um, menstrual hygiene products are part of that. We've been trying to ensure that people have access to clean water and the facilities they need and also trying to get the information out to people who need it about not just menstrual hygiene but about sexual and reproductive health during this time because as you have less access to um, doctors and health clinics, um, you have less information, especially in the global context, less information to online information. People really suffer. I mean, we saw after the Ebola crisis, for example, a really high rate of, of teen pregnancies as, as people found it difficult to get access to good sexual reproductive health information and um, contraceptives and um, medical advice. And so... The idea for us is really trying to build in from the front end the voice of girls and their needs and to really think about especially those girls who are most marginal, people with disabilities, people who are the poorest, people who have the least access to you know, water and facilities, income, etc., to help themselves. And that's kind of where we're focused. And so we've been working you know, across the board trying to get people, as I said, you know, dignity kits, access to water, good information. Um, mobile healthcare um, and all the things that people need so that they can both manage their period and all their other affairs during this time. And yeah, we've heard a lot about the impact of COVID-19, but as you said, the gendered impact is a little more hidden. Um, and while the issue of managing menstrual hygiene has been exacerbated by the pandemic, this was already an issue. Um, and it wasn't so long ago that we still had a luxury tax on pads and tampons. Do you think there needs to be more visibility around women's health in general? Yeah, I mean, I think the gendered impacts of 
COVID-19 are now being well documented. Women are at the forefront of the caring work and the unpaid work at the front line of um, health provision as well. Many, many have also been impacted in terms of the sorts of jobs that have disappeared as a result of the economic impact. I think the really interesting thing about this crisis is it's not just a health crisis, it's a health crisis. It's got an economic dimension and a political dimension as well. And what we know is that when you have these three things um, happening, often the people who are most um, you know, vulnerable or marginalised are most affected. And I think in this one, you're really seeing very acutely how these um, gendered implications across you know, the health care system, the economic system and the political system are coming together to really um, have this massive impact, really strong gendered impact on, on girls and women in particular. What I would say is that um, one of the things that for me it's really made me think about is just, yeah, how, how even in um, 2020 we disregard, you know, half of the population and their needs in our planning and thinking about how we respond and also how we think about recovery. And um, that has to change. And I think a lot of that's to do with representation, like who is making those decisions, who are on those committees, who are advising governments about them, and do we have the diversity of views they're bringing in, you know, those, those views that are representing the experience and lived experience of, of women and also of marginalised women. Yeah, is there anywhere in the world where we are seeing this kind of response or anywhere you'd look to in particular? It's really interesting. I mean, you've seen what I've been heartened by is there's quite a lot of like um, feminist responses to COVID-19 that are being put together. And there was one that I saw in Hawaii where um, a whole group of uh, feminist organisations, women organisations had put together a, a kind of a feminist COVID-19 recovery plan. And, you know, at the heart of that were things like ensuring representation, but also ensuring things like access to childcare and information and um, you know, secure work and other conditions were kind of built into the recovery from the get-go as a way of sort of responding. And I think um, that's been really heartening to see. And I think you're going to see more of that. What we really need people to do is, is recognise that you know, those um, deep divisions and discrimination that exist in our society don't go away when you have a health crisis. They get, they're often made worse. But there is an opportunity during this time as we've paused, maybe to rethink, you know, we've been able to do things during this time that, you know, we would have thought impossible. Um, we've kind of been through JobKeeper being able to lift the, the minimum amount of money that people are able to be paid. You know, could that be sustained? We've been able to get homeless people off the street when we haven't been able to do that before. We've been able to make childcare free, which we haven't been able to do. The question I would be asking is, what do we want to take forward um, into the post-COVID-19 world that um, will help set us up for a more equal and more sustainable kind of community? And um, what do we want to let go of? What do we want to leave behind and, and say that, you know, that that's not going to serve us well in the world that's emerging on the other side? And what do you think that might look like? Do you think the government needs to make a more systemic change, like a price cap or ensuring products are free? Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, menstrual hygiene products, you mean? Yes. Yeah. yeah, so in terms of menstrual hygiene, I mean, I think you've seen some good initiatives in terms of making some of these products free in schools, and I do think that's a really great initiative. Certainly the Victorian government has taken 
though, kids as kids are out of school at the moment, that's not really helping them very much. But I would say that um, it's really important for, especially, I think especially when you get your, um, you know, you need, we need to be able to find ways to ensure this thing that happens to women, you know, every month, you know, is, isn't, is not stigmatised and is not considered a burden and that we have ways of being able to assist women just to, to live their full, the full lives that they want to live. And I think the thing for me about young girls or people getting their period for the first time is that often that's where stigma is formed um, in the first instance and it's also um, where I think we can challenge that um, from the get-go. And schools can be a good place where, you know, you can get access to the facilities and the information you need and the products um, in a way that's non-judgmental, non-stigmatised. I think that gives us a chance at a different kind of um, conversation about periods into the future as well. And yeah, well, it sounds like there needs to be a change on a broader level. What can we do now as individuals to help? Yeah, I mean, I would be saying to people is um, think about, um, you know, have this conversation. That's one of the things we can be doing. And I think the whole purpose of World Menstrual Hygiene Day is to get people talking about periods <laughs> and to help remove that stigma. So if you're listening in, talk to someone today about what you heard on the radio and and just start to break down and say, did you know, you know, during this pandemic, just what that impact and just start to have that conversation, which I think um, we really need to do. If you um, are in a position to be able to do so, supporting organisations like Share the Dignity, like Plan International that are supporting um, women and girls, you know, uh, on the front line with the support that they need, that would be a great additional thing to do. And then I think we do need to kind of be speaking up about um, what do we want to happen in the future and how are we going to create um, for future crises, uh, ensuring that, you know, women and girls' needs are built in to the front end of that. And if we are making arrangements for toilet paper, that we're also making arrangements for menstrual hygiene products at the same time. That was Susan Legina, CEO of the charity Plan International Australia, discussing the gendered impacts of the pandemic and how we can better incorporate the needs of women and girls in our response. Now let's go to a track from Emily Waramara. This is Naraku Jainama. Oh, 
Are you a person with a disability? If you are an Australian citizen, a permanent resident, or a recently accepted refugee or humanitarian entrant under the age of 65, you are able to apply for access to the National Disability Insurance Scheme. If you have met access requirements, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, also known as the NDIS, will help you access the government-funded supports you need. To find out more, visit the NDIS website or go to your nearest NDIS partner office and ask for a language interpreter to help you. NIDA and NDIA are sponsors of this radio station. Three CR Community Radio, eight five five AM. I think Three CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Next up, we're going to hear an interview with film director Maya Newell talking about the social impact of her latest film, In My Blood It Runs, which is having a series of special screenings during Reconciliation Week. Some of you might know Maya from her earlier documentary, Gaby Baby, where she tackled the subject of children raised in same-sex families. This time, she provides an intimate window into another world, that of 10-year-old Aranda Garoa boy, Juan, living in the Northern Territory. Last time I spoke to Maya was in early March when she was a guest at the Australian International Documentary Conference. The film had just been released in cinemas and remarkably, for an independent documentary, was enjoying box office success. Then COVID-19 struck and cinemas closed. I asked Maya how this felt. Yeah, you know, it is incredibly challenging to make feature documentaries in this country or anywhere around the world. It takes so much dedication and um, commitment. You know, we were making the film for, I think, you know, three or four years. And then to finally get a documentary into cinemas is really hard. And then for that film to be going well as an independent documentary is almost unheard of. So, of course, it was incredibly devastating to have the film pulled from cinemas Um, however in saying that very quickly uh, the amazing team that sit behind the film were able to do an online pivot and make the film available for audiences across the nation to watch at home while they were locked inside their houses and we also offered 50% of all our ticket prices to support uh, First Nations communities to face the threat of COVID-19 and to support them through this uncertain period. So that was really great for us to feel like we could contribute in some way using the film. Uh, We had virtual cinemas and Q&As with um, incredible speakers from all across the territory and, and around the country. And, yeah, so we were able to sort of pivot a bad situation into just finding a different way to share the film and, and Duan's 
story with the world. It's now Reconciliation Week. How does that feel for you and the the team, both here in Melbourne and in the Territory? Yeah, look, I think Reconciliation Week, we've been working really hard to offer opportunities for people to engage with the film and in conversations and the voices of those people in the film. And today we just had to stop all of the hard work for a moment and just recognise this day. It is the anniversary of the 1967 um, referendum where Aboriginal people were voted, uh, allowed to have the vote and by a a huge number and finally became uh, acknowledged not only as flora and fauna in this country, which is a horrific thing that for so long they were seen as that. And there are many days that are significant this week, like Sorry Day and Marbo Day. And it's really important for all of us as settlers, and I'm including myself in that, in in this country, to recognise the the history, the horrific history that we all, of this country, and to acknowledge that history so that we can move forward as a nation. and yeah, there's lots of truth telling. Obviously, as Duan even says in the film, you know, the history that I'm told at school is for white people, but the history that I'm told at home, that's for us, for Aboriginals. And I think we just really need to close that gap and ensure that we um, share the many histories of this country and engage in a process of truth telling so that we can all move forward. And that's what this week is all about. We are marking this week by sharing the film for free for schools all across the country um, who can register. And we already have over two and a half thousand schools who will be watching the film and studying it in their classrooms. We have free ATOM guides, so student resources and professional learning resources for teachers. And we also have a suite of virtual excursions where students and teachers can tune in with their classes to um, learn more about the film across, you know, subjects like science and history and civics or media studies or legal studies and, um, yeah, lead, listen to some leading First Nations um, teachers and speakers on those subjects. So, yeah, it's a really a big week for the film and we're so glad to be able to, to share that um, publicly throughout this week. Last time we spoke about the production process being a vehicle for for change in itself in the way it uh, involved um, the community in decision-making, participation in the film on screen uh, with the strategic social impact aspects. Yeah, I think that's really well said and, and really nice that you picked up on that. And as we were making the film... I would constantly call our advisors like uh, Margaret Kamara Turner or, you know, Carol, Duane's grandmother or William Tillmouth and say, you know, I don't, I don't know what to do or, you know, this isn't working or this happened and it was really full on or, you know, we got this offer to sell the film here but it's under these conditions and uh, the answer, you know, would always be, Uh, around grounding the agency of families to control their own solutions or um, grounding, you know, asking them, you know, what what they thought or involving them in those decisions. And um, I really do think it all comes down to that. Um, If that's the only message that sort of gets out there, then um, that would be our job 
well done. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, when I realized that I could make films in the world and then use those films for social change, um, it was very exciting to be able to make art and then also to add the campaigning and advocacy in order to support um, the, for those people in the film to face the challenges that they witness, that we all witness on screen. So it really is uh, a, really, a real dream job, but no one can do any of that work alone. So it really is the work of a very large team and also the impact work that we're doing is the work of many, many um, mostly First Nations organisations who have been fighting these fights for a long time before a film, this film came along. And um, the nice thing about it, the film and the story is that it can shine a light on that work that sometimes gets forgotten or um, walked past or you know, not acknowledged properly. And yeah, I, I hope that's, that's what we can do really is that you end this um, watching this film and you remember to go to organisations like Children's Ground or National Indigenous Youth Education Coalition or look to the leadership of Stronger Smarter Institute uh, who are all, you know, working tirelessly to change um, education for First Nations children in this country. Would you like to talk about a little more specifically about some of the actions that have been taken and are being taken by um, the community organisations such as Children's Ground? Yeah, of course. So it's also worth mentioning with Children's Ground that they're not just one of our partners. They're also... Um, were involved from the onset of the making of the film and it is also Duan's own grandmothers in the film who run that organisation and are fighting to lead their own change, um, to have agency over the way that their children learn and grow. And um, we are raising money at the moment to support the establishment of an Aranda-led school on Duan's homeland out at Merakanabib, which is about an hour and a half um, out of uh, Alice Springs in the Northern Territory and you can go directly to our website and um, contribute to their amazing work which is curriculum writing it's not only you know bricks and mortar um, and it's the leadership required to support people to lead that change um, there's also um, work around juvenile justice and supporting the raising of the age of criminal responsibility, which is currently 10 years old in this country, which is pretty outrageous. So everyone that I speak to has a real jaw-dropping moment when they hear that. I mean, around the world in most Western countries, it's at least 14. I think it should be, you know, 18 before you can be allowed to have a criminal record. But the fact that it's Duan's age in My Blood It Runs is really horrifying and there's currently a process of deliberation with our attorney generals to raise that age or to contemplate raising that age and so you can go to our website and you can write a letter directly to your attorney general if you believe in that issue. For those of you who have just tuned in you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. I'm Claudia and I've been speaking with Maya Newell, director of In My Blood It Runs, a documentary film illuminating the challenges facing First Nations people through the eyes of a 10-year-old boy, Juan. Maya's just spoken about the strength of Juan and his community and I'm going to play a clip of Juan speaking to the United Nations Human Rights Committee in Geneva last year to demonstrate just that. My name is Duan. I'm 12 years old. 
I'm from Marinda and Garwa country. I came here to speak with you because the Australian government is not listening. The adults never listen to kids like me, but we have important things to say. I'm the star in a new documentary in my blood it runs. The film shows that I felt like a failure at school. I was always worried about being taken away from my family. I was nearly locked up in jail. I was lucky because my family, they know I am smart. They love me. They found a way to keep me safe. There are some things I want to see changed. I want my school to be run by Aboriginal people. I want adults to stop crawling 10-year-old kids in jail. I want my future to be out on land with strong culture and language. My film is for all Aboriginal kids. It is about our dreams, our hopes, and our rights. I hope you could make things better for us. Thank you. Je vous remercie de la parole à And a note, Duane was the youngest person ever to address the Human Rights Committee at the United Nations. And justice is not the only issue this community is tackling. You know, I come from a family of teachers and teachers have got a tough gig and they they have so much pressure on them all the time and they've got all these sort of curriculum requirements to teach about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander uh, histories and perspectives and so forth, but they're giving no support in, in doing that. And so there absolutely is, you know, we've been talking to lots of partners and, you know, there should be mandatory um, courses and modules at a pre-service teacher university level um, to support teachers to be able to um, to do that work and to make their classrooms culturally appropriate and culturally safe for First Nations children. Um, so, yeah, I think the film is absolutely out there to start that conversation at that systems level and to support teachers in the really important work that they do. And just before um, we finish up, you mentioned earlier that Duan's grandmothers were part of the Children's Ground foundational group. And that made me reflect on something else that gets talked about so often in the context of Indigenous communities and families, and that is intergenerational trauma. But here we have intergenerational leadership and intergenerational education happening in a community. This isn't promoted enough in the mainstream either, is it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think that often there is the the feeling or the assumption that there are no solutions or you can watch a, a film like In My Blood It Runs and you can feel, you know, downhearted in, in some respects or upset at, that we haven't worked this out after over 250 years. But in actual fact, there is so much hope because the answers are right there and they've been there the whole time. And Aboriginal people like Duane's grandmother's uh, and grandfathers have been screaming and trying to get everyone's attention um, to follow their solutions and their agency. And um, all we need to do is listen to them and support them and resource them to be able to enact their own change. And it's possibly one of the only things that we have not tried in Australia. We seem to go back over and over again and try the same old failing um, ideas that come from the outside. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, this Duan's family are a, a formidable. He has grown up with a resilience and understanding of history and his place in the world and he's grounded in his identity. They have done such an amazing job at raising him. Um, 
and you know his grandmothers uh, they are all leading their own change uh, but just need space and support in order to make a big splash that was Maya Newell director and co-producer of In My Blood It Runs a documentary film screening with live Q&As this week, Wednesday and Thursday evenings at 6.30pm. So log on to the website www.inmybloodatruns forward slash screenings to buy tickets. The film is rated PG. And if you're interested in hearing more about the ethical processes behind this film, listen on after 8am when Maya returns. And now I'm going to play a song called Lion in My Heart by Gamilaray woman Amy Hannon. Baby 
What's the color of our flag? Red, black, and yellow. What's the color of our flag? Red, black, and yellow.
you can see that this country is covered in the blood of Aboriginal people, and the length and breadth of it. Australia is a part of an undeclared war and a secret invasion, and it began 250 years ago this year. Now we have a country that's built on lies, deceit, fraud, propaganda and race hatred indoctrination. Now it's been 250 years of us being oppressed in our own land, brutally. We might be oppressed but we understand what freedom is and we fight for it every day and we've resisted this occupation since day one. And I predict colonialism, capitalism, imperialism is going to get knocked out cold by about mid this year. your station in struggle and solidarity. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. Last week I read an illuminating article in The Conversation by Professor Libby Porter. She is Professor of Urban Planning with the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. Her research is about how urban development causes dispossession and displacement and what we should do about it. Her work examines Indigenous rights in urban and environmental planning, gentrification and displacement, the impact of mega-events on cities, sustainability, urban informality and critical urban governance. Now, the article in the conversation was about the sale of public land in Victoria and how that's affecting the public housing stock. We've got Professor Porter on the show this week to explain. For anyone who wants to read the article, it was published in the conversation on the 27th of May and the title is Public Land is Being Sold Off Exactly Where Thousands on the Waiting List Need Housing. Now, it's important to recognise when we're talking about public land in Australia, we are talking about the stolen land of Aboriginal people, and that provides a very important subtext to our conversation. I started off by asking Professor Porter, where exactly is this land that's being sold? Well, the land that's being sold, um, and it's a large amount of land, uh, is actually right across Victoria um, in in different places. Uh, Much of it's agricultural land um, and some of it's well outside urban centres, but quite a lot of it is in urban centres, including metropolitan Melbourne and in places like um, Mildura and Geelong, uh, Bendigo, Sale, those kinds of areas. Um, We found that uh, around 55 hectares of it is actually located in metropolitan Melbourne, which, as we know, is a place where we really need um, more affordable housing uh, and in many of those key regional centres as well uh, to support people there. So, um, yeah, but really spread right across Victoria. And the government is preparing to sell over 2,600 hectares of land and it's only um, 90 hectares of that that you've found that's suitable for public housing um, and it would cost... Uh, they, it would provide about 1,300 to 1,800 public housing dwellings at a cost of between $400 million and $540 million. How much would the government make from the sale of those 2,600 hectares in the first place? And what happens to that money? Yeah, they're, they're great questions. Um, I, I can't tell you the answer to the first one. Um, it would very much depend on where the uh, what the you know, market rate is in, in those areas and what the things like zoning are and uh, how proximate they are to urban centres, all those kinds of things. So we need to do a fair bit more analysis before we um, could come up with a figure. 
uh, on that. Needless to say, that um, it's probably quite a lot of, of, of cash um, that could be procured from um, the sale of that public land, and that is no doubt what motivates governments um, in that direction. Um, I guess perhaps when thinking about what we might um, earn, if you like, as an income stream, if you're thinking collectively as, as the public through the government, um, yes, of course, that would be a big income stream. But I think what we need to not lose sight of is the fact that we would lose um, all of the future capacity uh, of using that land for public good purposes um, if we were to sell it, uh, which is most likely what will happen uh, and has happened, of course, in the past. So um, I, I think we, it's important when we're thinking about what would we gain from selling it or how much would we, would we collectively um, earn from the sale of it uh, to think about what we lose um, in terms of opportunity cost uh, for the, the rest of everything but for, the, for the foreseeable future and beyond uh, in terms of the public good um, it could deliver. Um, so I think those are important policy questions for listeners. Definitely. And your article also points out that public hand public land is being sold through the public housing renewal program. Could you tell our audience what, what that program is? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, this has been a, a sort of policy plank, a key policy platform of the Victorian government's housing strategy um, for a few years now. Uh, and it's had various sort of manifestations and, um, and models already uh, used within Melbourne um, over the last sort of 10 years or so, um, particularly at places like the, the Kensington Estate um, in Melbourne's inner west. Uh, but the Public Housing Renewal Program um, is ostensibly really about renewing um, the sort of buildings uh, on public housing estates. It targets between nine and 11 public housing estates uh, that are currently 100% public housing um, across Melbourne, uh, mostly in the sort of inner and middle ring areas. They're the, the sort of smaller walk-up uh, type estates, uh, um, largely speaking, sort of medium density kinds of, uh, kinds of look. Um, and the, if that program was to be concluded uh, and as it advances through the sort of tranches that's, that are being um, proceeded with at the moment, uh, it would mean that we would lose all of those um, estates, all of those sites of land from um, public ownership uh, to, because they will be sold ultimately to both private um, as private housing uh, and to uh, non-government community housing providers. Um, so uh, it's a really important uh, program to look at and, and I think look at critically for what it will really achieve in terms of delivering uh, low income and affordable housing right where we need it most, uh, which is in some of these areas in, in Melbourne. Uh, and the loss that we will uh, experience um, for the rest of the future um, if we lose those really high-value um, parcels of land to that program. Reading your article, I came across the term social housing. Is there a difference between uh, public housing and social housing, and is one better than the other? That's a great question, um, it, and this is where uh, researchers and, and policy folk get excited because we, <laughs> it's really important to understand these key differences. Yes, there is a difference. Um, social housing is uh, a kind of category that's used um, around the world, really, to sort of catch together all of the forms of housing that you might call um, fall under sort of housing assistance or non-market housing. So they include public housing. Um, in the Australian context, they, it includes public housing, community housing, which is provided by um, non-government community housing organisations, uh, and also um, forms of uh, remote Indigenous housing and um, Indigenous community controlled 
housing as well, and, and some other forms of um, sort of housing assistance sort of on, on, the, on the edges of that, which are really relatively small numbers. So social housing is a, it's a kind of catch-all category, and it's often used um, in a little in sort of slippery ways, and we have to be a little bit careful with how we use it. Um, one of the problems with um, using it as a catch-all like that is that we lose sight of the public housing question there. Um, and the sort of shifting dynamics within the category. So one of the reasons that um, public housing has been declining in real terms in Victoria for a very long time um, is because a lot of the stock is being transferred out of the public housing sector into the community housing sector. Um, now, community housing absolutely has a role to play um, in the Australian housing system, um, but not at the cost of public housing. And it is concerning that um, public housing is experiencing such a decline. So I think it's useful for your listeners to be aware of these kinds of um, category differences um, when they hear politicians speak about it. Yeah, it does seem, it does seem to be a really uh, tricky area, public housing and how it's discussed. Even that um, public housing renewal program, like the way it's described, that that sentence seems that it would be a good thing, but it, in the end, it's actually sort of destroying a lot of public housing. Yes, you're exactly right. And this is, you know, the, the way language can be so slippery, can't it? I mean, public housing is, um, uh, the definition of public housing is housing that is both owned and managed by the state. Um, so both of those things have to be present for it to be called public housing. Um, so that's an important kind of um, definition there. Um, the public housing renewal program, and the word renewal is such a slippery beast, I think. Um, it gets used in lots of sort of uh, circumstances and policy formats, um, both here in Australia and around the world, and often doesn't actually mean what it says on the tin. Um, generally speaking, it means uh, that communities experience a lot of displacement um, and there's a lot of uh, social and, and economic and health and wellbeing effects of that displacement, as we're seeing actually right now through the Public Housing Renewal Program, um, and often doesn't deliver very good outcomes in terms of public goods. So we put in a lot of money or we lose a lot of assets like public land and public housing, but we don't get very much back um, as, a, as a result of that. So it's a, it's a really poor uh, policy framework to be advancing. Um, the conclusion of your article provides what seems like a pretty reasonable solution to the balance between the need for public housing and economic recovery. You write, for investment, uh, for a modest investment, Victoria could build thousands of public housing dwellings in excellent locations to deliver the basic infrastructure of life, a place to call home. If we are serious about it, a construction and infrastructure-led recovery, now is the time to finally realise that housing is essentially is essential infrastructure. What can our listeners do to encourage that kind of action by Victorian government? Oh yes, I would love your listeners to get involved in um, in whatever they in whatever ways they can. Um, there are lots of uh, housing. Uh, campaign groups um, and, and local people who are really championing this cause and have been for a very long time. Um, you can definitely write to your local MP um, and to the Minister, uh, Minister Wynne, who's the Minister for both Housing and, and Planning, and, um, and really, you know, make sure that the government is aware of how many people in Victoria support the um, very grave need for uh, public housing um, and, and producing a housing system that really does deliver, as we said in the article, the basic infrastructure of life, because that's essentially what housing is. It's, it's not an, an asset or an um, exchangeable commodity in the real estate market, although we have rather reduced it to that. Uh, it's, it's a fundamental 
fundamental human rights to be housed uh, safely and, and affordably and securely. So the more we tell our government that that's what we want as a society, um, I think the better those outcomes could be. So I really encourage people to get active, write to the paper, write to your local MP, get involved in um, campaign and advocacy groups and make your voice heard. That was Libby Porter, Professor of Urban Planning with the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. She let me know after a recording about an important campaign. It's called the Save Public Housing Collective. And for anyone who gets involved, we will get the info for that campaign up on our website. Now, here's Dr. Yunapingu with Amazing Grace.
3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community-owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org.au. Australian music needs your help. Music festivals, concerts and local gigs have been cancelled due to coronavirus. Artists, crew and music workers have lost their jobs and don't know when their next gig will happen. We're all facing the sound of silence, but you can help. Visit thesoundofsilence.com.au now. And if you've just tuned in to 3CR Monday Breakfast, I'm Claudia. This morning we've been talking with Maya Newell about the social impact work happening in conjunction with the film In My Blood It Runs. The film is an intimate window into the world of a young Arendagaroa boy, Duan, and the challenges he faces growing up in the Northern Territory. I spoke with Maya earlier this year when she was a guest at the Australian International Documentary Conference, and I'd like to play some of that conversation for listeners now, because it shows how agency for First Nations people is developing through ethical filmmaking. So here's Maya Newell, director of In My Blood It Runs, talking about the politics of representation in filmmaking and the importance of having ethical structures to ensure agency for the participants whose story is being told. We set out uh, to achieve a number of impact goals and one of, a lot of those are the the work that you put outside, like raising the age of criminal responsibility or, um, you know, supporting education reform for First Nations people, which are the active parts of our impact campaign for the audiences that come and see the film. But we always knew that there is so much work to be done within the industry with how we self-reflectively look at ourselves as filmmakers and content makers and there is a revolution in the way that stories are told in documentary that also needed a large amount of attention. So I have a relationship with the people on screen in In My Blood It Runs um, that spans maybe a decade of working um, in collaboration with families um, through organisations on the ground in Alice Springs called Aculeta and Children's Ground. And both those organisations have a really strong history of ethics and um, capturing people's images, but all, all, it was always for the benefit of the people on screen. So they're private films that are about documenting knowledge, a lot of really important cultural law um, and sens- with sensitivities that um, yeah, are incredibly important. And I think when we sat down to make this film, we just thought... Um, if you're making something for the public, um, I'm very aware of the politics of representation uh, from my prior work as well with Gaby Baby and understanding what that feels like to be a child who... Maybe I'll just take a step back. Um, when I made my first film, Gaby Baby, uh, which is about children being raised in same-sex families, um, I... I'm also a child who has been raised by lesbian parents and I understood what that felt like to have a world in constant debate about your own representation and putting out damaging 
stereotypical images and portrayals of your family. And in the case of my family, it was, um, you know, um, same-sex couples cannot raise children because they, those children will be damaged. So I understood the importance of getting that story right when there is, you're in a society that is constantly um, denigrating you uh, and marginalising you. And so in making this film, First Nations people have had their stories misappropriated for, you know, centuries, since the beginning of time. They've had that image controlled by other people who are not First Nations. And so we decided to create um, a structure that would keep us ethically in accountable um, to the people in the film, um, but also would just acknowledge our own bias as people who were not Indigenous to that area. And in our core creative team we have Larissa Barrent, Rachel Edwardson, who are First Nations people, but none of us, or even them, they're First Nations to the country, but they're not First Nations, they're not Island people. So we're all foreigners to that place. And I think sometimes we forget that, um, that even having an Indigenous director or is incredibly important and should be the first step but even an indigenous director is is a foreigner to that place um, and so we wanted to create a structure where the agency and control sat with those on screen um, and that meant having workshops from early messaging stage which allowed families to sit down and say you know what do you want this story to be about you know, what are the stereotypes that, and gaps um, that exist around your families? What are the most important things? And Megan, who's Duan's mum, she said, you know, I just want Australians to know that we love and care about our kids. And while that's a very simple idea in many ways, it's still a radical idea in Australia and um, you're hard, it's hard to find documentaries that... Um, that show that very simple thing about Aboriginal families in this country. And so that meant that when I went out filming, it's not that I needed to look for that story, but I was reminded that that was the gaze that I should try and take on um, and be aware of my own implicit bias at every level. Um, so we did things like had workshops where other First Nations people came in to give our non-Indigenous and Indigenous you know, team members an overview of the history of um, misappropriation of different stories and uh, what to look out for and what those stereotypes were and how we should combat that actively within our storytelling process. Um, we have things on that list that are like profit share. You know, Traditionally, in documentary, you don't pay the subjects in your film, which adds to this kind of extractive model where you fly in and take a story and then fly out but of course those on screen are the most they're giving the most you know their their time is as much as my time and they're being exposed in so many different ways so um that model was led by largely by rachel edwardson who's a Anupiat filmmaker and director from alaska who's one of the producers and we also lent on models of community initiatives throughout time like uh, Insuma Productions, Community Profits, Children's Ground. Uh, and so the model that we used on In My Blood It Runs is by no means innovative. It is taking from the history of largely First Nations organisations that have worked in this way in the margins for a long time 
and tried to bring it into um, a more mainstream filmmaking environment. A Screen Australia actually has some pretty leading protocols internationally in how we work with Indigenous communities and people that mean that you have to pass a certain checklist to even have a film with Indigenous content in Australia, which is really great. But I think for lots of projects, you know, there is, there's further steps that can be taken. Uh, and in particular, you know, just presenting a story at the end to people in it and saying, oh, is this okay? And then calling that consultation. It's very different being okay with a story that's out there that someone has made about you to being actively involved in that story's creation. Um, I think it's worth saying as well that the model that we took is by no means perfect as well. Like there's uh, a wide spectrum of ways of involving those on screen in a collaborative process. And, um, you know, the film, there are films that are like completely written by those people who are on screen as well. And this project is not that either. But we said that all of those major decisions, um, we would go to the families to decide whether to include those moments or not and have workshops that weren't only about approval but were about looking for what the story is as well and driving that narrative. How risky from a creative point of view is that process? Um, I think that documentary is risk anyway. And people say, oh, but if you involve people early on, then what if they say no? And what if they actually don't want to include some of the most dramatic moments? And isn't that, um, yeah, isn't that a risk to the creative process or to the final product? But we found the opposite. We found that for all of the huge, scary things that happened during the making of In My Blood It Runs, it was the families who wanted those parts included. And they never said, actually we don't want to include that but they gave us guidance and support as to how to include it and the kind of context that tricky things needed in order to be understood in a strength-based way and that's what I think we miss and I think in terms of risk it is there is more risk in not showing people because then you might get to the end of the process and then they might not be happy with it that's a huge risk you can't release a story into the world if the people in it are, are not happy. And we see that all the time, that projects fall down because they can't go and do any publicity about it because the people in the film don't want to talk about it. Whereas if you do that work early on, you're actually, by the time you get to the edit or halfway through the edit or the rough cut, you're absolutely sure that the people in it are on your side and you're walking alongside each other the only reason this film is possible and also the intimacy that you see on screen is possible is because this is dec a decade of relationships and um, me allow being allowed the privilege to walk alongside families in a way that was where we were not talking about making a film and um, for the public and trust. trust. That trust over years was integral and I think that's something else that filmmakers should think a lot about is like where are the stories if you're not from that place then what is the work that you're going to do um, to allow that trust and to actively give back to the people who you're making the film with it's 
suppose, for us as a team and for me particularly, just wanting to ensure that that light and recognition goes to those people that we learnt from mm-hmm. um, and that we're not just seen as the first people that have ever done this. And we want to be one of those small films that really punches above its weight. And that was Maya Newell, director and co-producer of In My Blood It Runs, a documentary film screening in the virtual cinema this week with live Q&As this Wednesday and Thursday evening at 6.30pm. And you can find information about the film and how to book tickets on the website www.inmybloodityruns forward slash screenings. And that's all we've got room for this week. That's Monday Breakfast with Ella, Paddy and myself. And a reminder that if you've enjoyed the show and are able to help us, please consider a small donation. It's our Radiothon this month and it really does help continue the work that we do. We'll look forward to seeing you next week again and stay tuned now for Women on the Line.